Hello and welcome to the next edition of this Harrington Star podcast. Whether it's Fintech Focus TV you're listening to or our diversity and inclusion specials, we hope you're enjoying the shows and please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women of Fintech podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the walk for change across the entire industry. Today, we are joined by Ruth van der Hoefer, an industry influencer, a fintech global speaker, a former banker, and a women in fintech powerhouse. She's also a partner at Gulf Ventures, one of the few female VCs in the fintech space. Gulf Ventures has supported many interesting fintech firms, including Curve, a well-known banking app. Ruth was named one of the 2010 rising stars by the Financial News. Also named in Management Today's 2011 35 Women Under 35 list of women to watch, and identified as one of the 100 most influential people in finance 2012 by the Treasury Risk Magazine. And I'm not finished there. She received the Women in Banking and Finance Award for Achievement in 2015 and in 2016. And in 2017, as well as 2018, she was named on the Global Women in Fintech Power List of Innovate Finance. She is a 2018 and 19 Top 10 Global Fintech Influencer, Fintech Power 50. And today, after that massive introduction of a million awards, congratulations, um, she is here to share her story with us. So Ruth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Nadia, and hello to everyone. Um, that was a bit of a long introduction, yeah. so uh, <laughs> let's not outplay it too much. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Ghost Ventures. Yeah, Gauss Ventures is a fairly small venture capital fund that we've created um, uh, roughly a year and a half ago. Uh, we, meaning um, myself and four other partners. Um, I'm the only female partner, but uh, as you say, I mean, there's just not many venture capital funds out there that even have female partners. So we are definitely uh, trying to change that in the, in the market here. Um, and Gauss Ventures is an um, interesting fund because it's investing in smaller startups, seed funding, A round funding, uh, and we have a particular view on industries and disruptive business models that have big technology elements and also new business models. And I guess the interesting part here is that the five partners we have all have very interesting experiences themselves in different areas. We so far managed uh, 19 investments and our fund currently has a $40 million under management. Fantastic. So already you've touched upon a few things that make you quite unique. What do you think really makes you stand out against other investors? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, I've seen some research recently that uh, emerging funds and emerging fund managers, so the smaller ones that are just starting, tend to actually on average outperform the big players, which is an interesting statistic. And some people have actually started collecting this data over the last decade or so. Um, and I think this is because people that are just setting up a fund and trying to dip their toe into it um, have a lot of enthusiasm and are trying to basically use a lot of their knowledge and network that they've built up in their previous careers. Um, and so that is obviously the interesting part here. We all have very different careers. There are people with venture capital experience. There are people with entrepreneurial experience in the fintech space. There are folks like myself, which have a combination of 
policy making. I mean, I used to work in Brussels for the regulators. I also used to work in a bank, obviously, for a very long time um, and smelled the excitement of fintech. Um, and there are also people that have been really entrepreneurs and businesses themselves exiting businesses. So the combination of these skill sets is really, really interesting and allows us to have a very diverse portfolio. We've invested, as I mentioned, in 19 companies, but these are really around the globe. Yes, a lot of them are in Europe and Eastern Europe, but there are also companies in the US, in Australia, in South Africa. So we have um, a really broad footprint in terms of location, which again makes it very exciting because obviously culturally every country is different. Every market operates differently. So the needs in those markets are themselves an exciting topic to research and get into. Uh, and then obviously we invest both in retail and wholesale fintech elements. Amazing. So what I'd really love to hear about is a couple of the fintechs that you've recently invested in, because um, I can imagine there'll be companies that we've, we've probably heard of. Yeah, I mean, you did mention Curve, so I won't go into too much detail. And Curve in particular is interesting because we invested in them early, in the sort of early rounds with a small amount. And then we happen to be specifically the B round lead for their B round, which happened um, a few months back. So we've been involved with Curve twice. Um, and that was done under a sort of slightly separate vehicle. But we do have a lot of experience in the retail space. So whether it's cards, retail payments in general, as well as interfaces in terms of sort of the neobanks and how the retail sector is becoming more digital. And so in that context, we've really looked both at Curve, but also at some other applications. One investment we made is in a South African digital bank called Better which is really trying to make things better, which I think is very exciting, particularly for those markets that are still at a slightly earlier stage of digitization. Um, another thing I'm very passionate about is the sort of more broader holistic technology change we see. I mentioned big impact technologies. One company we invested in is called Simudyne, um, and they basically operate a very new way of risk modeling called agent-based risk modeling which again is a holistic solution. So it's not only FinTech for financial services, it's something you can use in the commercial supply chain of card manufacturers as much as in the case of trying to detect fraud and anti-money laundering and payments. Um, and these guys are, are really taking off well. And we've basically see, helped them with developing relationships with infrastructures, exchanges in terms of the trading side, and creating risk modeling around whether you may have rogue traders or how to test your algorithms. They also work with regulators around the anti-money laundering side. So this is a very diverse approach and very interesting because it really does build on a nascent type of business model and technology altogether. Um, another company is Capitalize. Um, these are very interesting guys. Again, a very digital business model around the SME lending sector. And as you can imagine, um, given these guys are UK um, operated, um, it's a very interesting time now in this crisis with obviously the coronavirus business uh, interruption loan scheme where they're also um, an engine to distribute um, and to connect to lenders. So basically they help SMEs and not only understand how lending and liquidity management work and try to educate them on managing their funds, but they basically have a platform to match the funding needs from the SME sector with the supply side from banks and other institutional services. And they have lots of financial advisors on the platform as well. And it's interesting to see in this particular situation we're in right now, um, obviously these companies give us projections on growth and onboarding of new clients or advisors, 
And in this COVID-19 crisis, we've seen that over the last few months, um, that really went completely through the roof because everyone uh, goes to join these digital platforms, not only for cost saving, but also to find more suppliers and more um, uh, connections to loans. And obviously it's great to have the C-bills um, element in that too as well now. Well, it's fantastic to hear such a variety of company as well um, that you've been able to support and, and invest in. I think what would be really good to hear now is a bit about your journey to your current position that's enabled you to be able to help so many. Yeah, that is quite a journey. Where do I start? <laughs> um, let's not make it too long, but it's quite exciting. Um, I think, first of all, my, my attitude to life is I'm curious. I want to find out and understand stuff. And I feel most excited when I can suddenly see in front of my virtual eye how things connect and how you can either find a solution to a problem or you discover something completely new that's through the combination of all these things suddenly appears in front of your eyes. Um, several years ago, so I studied in the UK, I studied in France, I then came back to Germany, my home country, uh, worked a little bit um, in, in the real estate fund sector, which was a bit left field to be honest, but I was an economist by heart. Um, and then I got the opportunity to move to Brussels and do a traineeship in the European Commission, which was something completely different. Uh, and it was something that really wasn't able to me because I'd studied in different countries and was, I was very open culturally, language wise, and very interested in this whole European thing. And so when I landed in Brussels and did this traineeship, it was obviously very interesting to understand how this whole Brussels context operates. Uh, but ultimately, I decided to stay there and I spent four and a half years working as a lobbyist. So I was basically uh, negotiating policy on behalf of European banks um, in terms of emerging topics. And these topics happened to be payments. So it was the time of the first payment services directive, foundational legislation to define what payments are, how you insert new business players into the payment value chain, and how you create all these conduct of business rules. And it was also the time of general infrastructure change around payment systems. We obviously all remember the single Euro payments area initiative. And I was basically at the very start of these foundational changes in the industry. The other side I covered was securities, clearing and settlement. Again, quite interesting developments we've seen subsequently with the ECB and their systems on their side. And because of these early years working both with banks, with policymakers and trade bodies, I just learned a lot of stuff and was able to connect the dots because I understood a lot more about banking. I understood a lot more about policy and how you help policy development from a technical perspective. So not so much about political goals, but rather about helping the policymakers to achieve the right goal in terms of making the market more competitive. Uh, and obviously you work with all these different nation states uh, in all these different languages, which was very exciting. Um, at, in 2007, I then decided, okay, it's time to move on. And I wanted to go back to a bank. So I was in a real, real estate sector before, but it was within a bank. So I kind of felt like I want to go back to a bank and I definitely wanted to be in London. Uh, and I ended up in Citigroup, which was fun. Uh, and it was interesting because I, I landed there when City was still the largest bank in the world. And 2008, we all know that changed. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's great to experience uh, hiccups and challenges and to see how, how the whole world reacts to that. So I think being in a bank and, and living through the financial crisis was something very uh, formative and, and very challenging, but also really interesting. And back to my motto of being curious, I basically decided to combine all the policy connections and knowledge I had from the past career 
with this banking career to create something of a hybrid. Um, and I basically learned a lot about what City did, what its clients did, uh, worked with global trade bodies, came back to the European trade bodies and created what I eventually called a regulatory and market strategy role within the business that again connected the dots between our clients, between our product development, business development side, between our engagement with policymakers around technical regulatory topics, and obviously between the market and representing within trade bodies and so on. And so that was a great time. I spent 11 and a half years in city. It is such a big place that you really never get bored. I love the fact that it was very diverse and not only gender wise, but also in terms of nationalities and experiences and backgrounds. Uh, it was truly cool to walk the floors because you would meet so many different people. Even if you were in London, most of them will not be English. And it was just very interesting and very, um, uh, very, uh, it gave you the opportunity to do the things you wanted to do. So I ended up, even though I was in the transaction banking business, I ended up working very closely with um, our analyst business in the investment bank, with investors into City directly, uh, and basically keeping everyone up to date on the regulatory landscape change and increasingly on the innovation change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the fintech stuff really comes into play. So tell us a little <laughs> bit more about what attracted you into that fintech and when that first came into play, because that's, that's something that I find really interesting myself. And now your focus is so much on that. Um, so yeah, please tell us a bit more. Yeah, so fintech is really exciting and it came about through complete serendipity as so many things. Uh, I mean, I already had figured out that regulation can be a driver for business change and for innovation itself, because as regulators change the rules, you have to not only adapt, you have to actually think about how you make this commercially viable, how you create more value add for your clients, how you benefit through change, as opposed to taking this passive compliance attitude, which is why I also never wanted to sit in the compliance function, but rather within the business. Now, suddenly FinTech came along. A good friend of mine, Liz Lumley, at the time worked at GT News. I'd done lots of articles with her on SEPA and PSD1, SEPA Ever After, and all those types of headlines. Uh, I'd written my book on payments and all sorts of crazy stuff. And then she had changed to work for a startup bootcamp. And she came to me and said, look, I think you would be an excellent mentor for the FinTechs we have here. You know, all these cohorts, they're getting through the accelerator. And I said, well, why not? I'll just come along and have a chat and see what, what's going on. And that was 2015. That's when I really got into this fintech space and realized working, particularly with smaller companies, how much interesting knowledge you've gathered throughout your experience across policymaking, commercial banking, retail banking, all of those different examples, real estate funds, you name it. All of this experience counts in a way to help a company to think about stuff end-to-end, -end, whether it's marketing, client funnel development, product design, it could be really literally anything. And it's most important that you bring that common sense to these companies, particularly in the early stage. Some people have a great idea, but they may not have the right technology or they have the right technology, but didn't understand that it could, could apply to fixing a completely different problem. And so you can be really impactful in this space. And that gave me good balance because as you can imagine in a global corporate such as City, it's sometimes hard to change everything you want to change. You're making an impact, certainly on your clients and on your business, but you may not be able to change everything you want to change as quickly. But when you work with these fintechs, you can really help them to get on the right track from the, the get-go. And that's what I found fascinating. Um, I also found fascinating 
the increasing uh, visibility and mainstreamness of the whole development around Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. Obviously, uh, the early guys, you know, looked at it in 2009. I started looking at it in 2014-15 uh, and I eventually even did my research on this with my PhD around how these technologies of distributed systems impact payments and infrastructures. Um, and that was truly a combination of things because I got deeper and deeper into the technology and thought about not only helping fintechs as a mentor, but also looking at the industry in a different way and starting to see how business models can evolve because of the new technology. And sometimes this evolution doesn't happen immediately in large corporations, but actually we've seen a lot more people coming out of the institutions such as City, Barclays and all the other banks to create fintech companies. And this is where obviously we find that sweet spot of having people that know the industry well, that understand the technology, that have a passion for this, and that are seeing the opportunity of new business models and processes. And that's really how it all hangs together. Absolutely. And it's so great to hear your, your vast knowledge and your journey and how all of that, every part of your journey has really culminated in you being able to understand and advise and invest in in some really exciting companies. Um, as you were talking us through that, um, you spoke really positively about um, the challenge that you faced at City, um, especially during the last uh, economic crisis. And it was interesting in that you learned a lot. With that in mind, what advice would you give to fintech companies now during this economic crisis? Yeah, I mean, we immediately start to see that, of course, um, cost management and agility are core factors. And this is not only applicable to smaller fintechs, it's really to everyone. Um, I mean, maybe being a bit cynical, obviously what you see sometimes in the market is that certain companies are clearly a bit overvalued. They're managing to raise in massive rounds and it goes up to that sort of unicorn level. Um, and ultimately you always have to ask yourself, what is the actual value this company brings? Is this something unique? Is this something easily replicable? Sorry. <laughs> um, and of course, looking from that down, um, are they actually running their business in an efficient way? Yeah. Um, are they running it, you know, do they employ too many salespeople, but they don't really need it? Um, do they actually provide value add to their customers? What are they really doing? And we've actually, before the crisis, we already had a very interesting exercise within our portfolio company where there were a few cases which had clearly spent a little bit over the budget in the sense of you know hiring maybe too many sales guys too many guys in certain areas um and and we said look i think we don't maybe need all of these um what are you doing in terms of getting your costs more in line and increasing your runway becoming just a bit more practical and down to earth with this <laughs> and really applying the resources where you need them um, and, and, and for example, one of our companies made a drastic cost exercise, which really got them into a healthy play. And we then connected that company CEO to another of our companies where we felt maybe they could improve on that side. And this already happened last year. And I think it's really interesting to see that in this particular crisis, these efforts obviously accelerated. People are taking a much closer look at their budgets, what they're doing with their money. And we also see, as I mentioned earlier, with, with a number of our businesses, that their digital business model at the core is actually taking off a lot faster. And a lot of things can really be automated. And again, it's sort of that thing that I think everyone should be looking out for. How much can you automate? How can you be agile and lean in terms of your cost management? Obviously, you need to make sure most of these businesses in that space are data businesses of some sort. 
make sure you have the right cyber resilience in place. This is something that throughout my different uh, sort of jobs that I'm doing at the moment is, is an ongoing theme because we do see that institutions of any shape or size are being attacked, you know, through DDoS attacks, phishing, malware, you name it. And I think it's really important that fintechs from an early stage are building that um, IT resilience framework. It's not about over-engineering, but it's about making sure that you know who has access to what, how you protect your data, which type of cloud providers you use. You have to have a plan and you have to have an ability to monitor and act if something goes astray. And I think this is really, really important. A hundred percent. And something that not, not everyone's thinking about right now. I think that that last point in particular, protecting your data, people are talking a lot about cost management, agility and efficiency, but they're not talking enough about that protecting data. So that's really, really good advice. Um, another thing that you mentioned when you were talking about your time at City was just how diverse City was um, and is, um, and how you had diversity in lots of different forms across the, across the business. And of course, this Women of FinTech podcast series is very much about um, encouraging more diversity within the FinTech space. Um, what do you think are the biggest obstacles facing the fintech industry today when it comes to attracting more female leadership? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, very simple answer is that obviously at the moment it is just too male. Um, and arguably it is also applicable to the general financial industry. It is still too male. Um, I guess fintech in some parts is particularly still to male because a lot of the focus depending on the type of organization you talk about is on the technology the coding uh, and i think that particular piece which is obviously at the heart of, of these solutions the engineering side of it is something that can only change culturally over time i mean we see all these stem initiatives i've got a little daughter at school you know i encourage that girls in particular ex are exposed to opportunities of this and there's exciting ways to learn coding and technology and engineering early on across the board. And I think that really comes down to a different way of teaching younger generations. I think this will change, but it will take time. Obviously, if you then talk about the sort of AI algorithm bias, yes, we do have these problems, but AI is not yet with us fully fledged. So I think there's a lot of scope to make sure that these biases that we see behaviorally within organizations as much as in applications of certain algorithms because they've been coded by men are not necessarily going to be something that will last forever as these things change over time. But I do think, uh, and maybe the sort of the question around how we attract more women to the mm. sector, I do think that the current crisis is actually the great opportunity, not necessarily from the coding part alone, but from attracting women to any type of workplace in that digital ecosystem because you can work from home. And I recently uh, did, did a little article on this particular piece because I think it finally brings everyone on a level playing field, whether you are single in a partnership or you have children, um, that equality of everyone being able to work from home and also families therefore sharing things more between them, child education, homeschooling, looking after things, really gives that opportunity to attract a lot more women, particularly to the financial industry, to the fintech industry, to areas where women are today underrepresented. And I think I really hope that this is going to become a long-term positive consequence out of this. I do think a lot more people in future will continue to work more from home, maybe not 100%, but for those types of jobs that can be done digitally, um, working from home is, is really the new future, I think. 
And I completely agree. And I love that we're, we're ending this podcast on that note, because for me, it's so exciting that that level playing field is something that you've mentioned, because even even in the in the home, people are understanding the challenges that their partners face day in, day out. Um, you know, wives are seeing Indeed. what their husbands are facing at work. Husbands are seeing what their wives are doing after work and how they're having to look after the children. And I think it's in incredibly, incredibly important that you've mentioned that level playing field. And I agree with you. I think um, that will be the positive out of this time. Um, but I I've got to say that was an absolutely wonderful uh, podcast. There's loads of takeaways that you've given us and loads of advice that fintechs out there and the wider community out there can take advice from you on, um, especially that point, I think, on protecting your data. Um, I think that's something that's quite unique. And in other podcasts that I've done, people haven't necessarily mentioned mentioned that that piece. So I think that's a really, really um, insightful one. So, um, Ruth, thank you very, very much for joining us on the Women of Fintech podcast series. It's been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much, Nadia. <laughs>